0: Hello and welcome to Rabona's and Rhythms, I'm James Labuse
1: And I'm Alex Lawson and if you can't tell from that music we've taken you across the pond to the US of A Now often on this show we find ourselves taking you to far-flung places that you might not know a huge amount about and we're trying to tell you about the football and music of those countries This time you're probably aware of where America is, what its history is and that kind of thing but we're still going to try and bring you some stories that you might not have heard
0: Yeah, doesn't really need an introduction. Uh, A nation founded on July 4th, 1776 on the basis of freedom, equality and guns. (laughs) Yes, indeed, indeed. This incredible population has given birth to some fantastic music, from jazz to blues, country and hip-hop. Possibly punk, although I'd like to claim that for the UK.
1: Let's keep that one, definitely.
0: (laughs) It's definitely a dispute which will go on forever, I think. The politics of America like the UK is going through a turbulent patch, I think it's safe to say, and uh, we're getting a little bit political in this episode
1: to reflect this. Absolutely, yeah, we've got two really interesting uh, music and football stories. So, for our football story, we're going to talk about a dispute over in Portland where the fan group, the Timbers Army and fellow fans, have had a fallout with the club uh, and indeed the league, over political flags uh, shown in stadiums. This is a problem across the US, which has uh, come to light over the last couple of years, and uh, has come to a head with certain fans being banned from matches over the use of the Iron Front flag, which uh, has been reappropriated from Nazi-era
2: Germany. You know, being anti-fascist is nothing new. We fought wars over this, and we won. With the rise in hate groups now kind of being more emboldened in the last few years, And that's a narrative that's driven by white supremacy and white nationalism.
1: Uh, We'll talk to you more about that later in the show. And so you've got a cracker for our music story this time.
0: That's right. I invited an old friend. He's a musician. He's a big fan of the podcast. His name's Brendan Morgan to talk about the DIY indie music scene in the 80s, both the labels and the bands. Um, Of course, we spoke recently to people from Ninja Tune, Domino's, those kind of indie labels um, not not the majors but they wouldn't really exist without this movement in the 1980s
1: yeah it's so inspiring isn't it? the diy scene that that kind of flooded through america in the late 80s in a reaction to the big hair metal bands and stadium bands so sit back you get room for a treat here let's have a listen to brendan
0: So, we're going to be talking about the US hardcore punk and alternative scene, as it, as it's mainly called. It's an amazing story, and here to help me tell it to you, I've invited a long-time listener of the show and a long-time friend, Brendan Morgan, onto the pod. Hi, Brendan. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, Brendan, you're well-qualified to, to talk about what we're going to... Talk about today. You 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 spent some time in in Olympia in your childhood, and um, you've also got a, a band that was influenced by some of the bands we're we're talking about today, um, called Grub. Uh, tell me a bit about Grub. What what are they like?
3: Yeah, Grub is um, just a, a real fun rock and roll band that I, I play bass, write songs, and sing in uh, with two other mates, uh, James Hill and and Joe Turner. Um, and it's just uh, it's an absolute blast, I absolutely love it. And uh, you know, we, our ambition is, our real um, main ambition, you know, from reading a lot of, about this kind of stuff and getting into underground music is really just to keep putting, keep putting records out and just doing shows and just absolutely love it. And it's a kind of fast kind of grunge inspired a little bit by like Mudhoney and stuff like that.
0: we're going to be talking about. It's all covered in, in an excellent book um, by Michael Azarad called Our Band Could Be Your Life Scenes from the American Indie Underground 1981 to 1991. Brendan's just pulled out his copy. I've got my it's a great read and, and this episode is directly inspired by this book. We're not going to hide that and uh, you know if you want to know more we, we haven't got time to really cover much of the scene. Um, we're going to cover a few bands, a few Talking points, but if you want to know more, I would highly encourage you to, to, to go and get this book, read it. It's really well written. It's really engaging. So, Brendan, it's it's a scene which gave birth to the underground, isn't it? Really, and I, I would say, and many people do, that without it, we may not have had Nirvana, and you know things would look quite different
3: without without Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole, um, I mean, you know, obviously history is very much connected to whatever comes before it, and the 90s. Basically, pays a lot of a lot of that 90s electron, um, sorry, alternative music, pays a huge uh, debt to all the activity that was going on in the 80s, particularly in the underground. You, you can't have one without the other, and all, all the very successful bands in the 90s, when it suddenly became cool, uh, you know, to listen to the Breeders, all comes from hard graft of a lot of guys in the 80s who were who were pretty much unknown apart from the small groups that they were in or even, you know, the very small scene in which it was.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that it was an unfashionable thing to be in one of these bands. It wasn't, wasn't cool. And we forget that, that punk and being in a DIY band and living out of a van and all that
3: stuff wasn't really cool until after Nirvana, really. In the book they mentioned mom and pop stores, which is a term in America for like just families and friends who just put it all together and with fanzines and and this is obviously before the internet, so it's all by word of mouth and it's all uh, over the phone and it's all with zines and sharing stuff and getting your very limited amount of records into as many stores as you could. So of course it
0: wasn't just about the bands, it was about the labels and really the, the labels, the main labels you need to know about are SST, hugely influential, uh, Discord, Sub Pop, Alternative Tentacles, Touch and Go, uh, and then there were a few others like Slash, Tang, Frontier, and Poshboy. Basically, it was about bands who couldn't get signed to major labels. They knew that. They totally accepted that, didn't they? And they just thought we're just going to do it ourselves. So they created these labels just so they could release some records, and they actually became something.
3: Yeah, I mean, they they, they all started off with like people's you know um, living rooms. You know, sometimes just like you know a couple people. Just putting out records of their friends and this is back when of course they're going into a recording studio was like a real big deal so just having somebody with an eight track four track kind of recording probably even more basic than that and they basically just you know recorded these guys you know just doing their thing i mean you know for bad for bad for example bad brains very famously recorded their stuff in the basement and then you know when when hr would do the vocals he was out on the lawn because That was the only way that they could record it and separate all the, the parts, you know, which is just so ludicrous. Stories like that, they had a kind of mail order thing, didn't they? That went going especially with uh, SST and Sub
0: Pop, where they were actually the fans were actually ordering these these records directly from from these labels,
3: yeah. And they directly, uh, you know, they really relied on the direct involvement of their fans and, and their close relationship with fans. And, and the sort of thing, like, you know, if you really loved Sub Pop, you'd send away. them you get these kind of like records every month Um, and and you know you don't know what these things are but you know because the labels good you know they're putting out good stuff and you want to hear what it is so of course sub pop originally signed Nirvana
0: Um, and of course Nirvana left famously left for a major label before the
3: release of Nevermind they yeah they released uh, bleach on sub pop and and also one or two like little bits and Sub Pop at that point had had really like was starting to struggle with its business again, and it, and it's you know it's the, it's very famously said that you know Sub Pop has been going out of business since you know since the 80s, you know, because and it's still there. Yeah, and, and really the revenue from from Nirvana, even though obviously they don't have the rights to
0: to the major, you know, the the big selling albums, but it's just from Bleach they're still, you know,
3: got a, a serious income from that. Oh yeah, and they to this day. Oh yeah, and they're just their reputation of being involved in that and many other bands and 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 sort of creating out Seattle sound, which is what we know as grunge. A lot of the bands that were coming out of Seattle at that time were considered kind of woodchoppers basically.
0: Guys who were coming in from
3: from the woods to to oh, make music, yeah. you know, and
0: dressed that way.
3: Yeah, and even, you know, they even played up on it. Like Tad played up on the whole idea of being like psycho guys in you know, chopping down trees. They're actually like, been to university. Yeah, exactly. a lot that's, of them. And you know, that's the thing. All these guys were like bohemian, quite well-educated guys. You know, who are you know often very sensitive and very like you know re- sometimes a bit reclusive, sometimes a little bit sort of you know. So it, they, their whole sort of image was was very much a kind of part of a, a bit of a laugh. But and I think the British press
0: press in particular were responsible for kind of building that up and building that narrative. And they they have a, a tendency to do that. I think. So Brennan what what's the legacy now because now we we have you know an established indie label kind of scene and we have obviously the the big the big four at the time the big six so in the context of the 80s music scene it was Lionel Richie was in the charts we had the big six majors um, which were at the time Capitol CBS MCA Polygram RCA and WEA and of course Eventually these, these kind of major labels would, would be trying to sign the bands that, that these indie labels came after. But what did these indie labels
3: kind of cement into music? You don't need to rely on these massive corporations and companies to, to, to put something that you, you know, your, your spirit is enough to like make those things happen. I mean, you could argue it, it was a result of too much control by the record companies. Too that- much business approach. Yeah, and, and far too well planned and sort of taste making. When really they, they you know all the, there were this whole wealth of stuff that they were just missing out on. The lines are definitely blurred a lot more these days. Yeah,
0: I mean you you think of a you know some of the super indies or the labels now like Warp or Ninja Tune, um, who actually you know have have a really sustainable business model. But they it is the ethos is still you know with Warp you know you're going to get uh, incredible electronic music or you that. They're, they're never they're not going to try and sell you commercial shit are they and i guess that's the usp
3: yeah i mean that was the big thing it was sort of you know feeling like you're part of a family and being very people who are really into those labels really felt there's a really strong connection and i think and i think you can still get that you definitely get that now with a lot of independent labels um you know but and also, but you see uh, some of the bigger labels I, I definitely can tell they're a lot smarter with how they approach it. and obviously they're extremely savvy with how they put things through in their social media you know there's this kind of appearance that this is all you know uh, kind of part of a scene that they're capturing but really a lot of the time you get the feeling like they're kind of just creating it and, well you know. I, I'm, a, I'm a big beer fan
0: um, some of you <laughs> may know that and uh, I actually think there's a big connection here you know if you look at the craft beer scene in the last few years and now there's was it hop house which is actually it's it's pretending to be a, a craft beer but it's actually a guinness uh, brand you know it's a it's a it's created it's imitating those those craft beers and i think that's there's a comparison there you know between those two industries in that the what happens is the subculture of or the the niche products uh Become popular, and then the the big corporations kind of twig, and then they kind of mimic that marketing. I guess that's a c- sort of capitalist model. Yeah, the subculture I mean, always becomes kind of more mainstream.
3: Yeah, and, the, and these things kind of they cycle up round. I mean, that's kind of what happened to the, the tail end of the eighties. So that stuff kind of suddenly, you know, the record labels were looking for new stuff. It was inevitable that stuff would eventually get picked up. It all, you know, those things cycle, you know, cycle round and become more accepted. There's always going to be people who really. Sort of really want to champion authenticity or, or are just generally just looking for it and uh, It's it's definitely it was probably a lot easier back in the 80s to tell like, you know You all you needed was a couple pictures of the band and and just to hear them and be like wow these guys really they're they're You know that this is something really unique, but also just really like I could do that You know these these are people I could know you know these could be my friends uh, and it's definitely a blurring these days. I think that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to like I, th- I mean first of all I don't think people a lot of people care about authenticity and that's fine but um, But yeah, it's definitely harder to be able to tell what is authentic now and like um, It's a, it's a much harder thing But you know if you simply go out and see some of your local bands, you'll be able to figure it out pretty fast You know you can figure out who, who who's in it to just get laid <laughs> and who's in it to, because they really want to put the work in and they really want to help people out and they really want to be a part of something and they're not just there to just you know you know step on other people's heads so they can get to the top you know um so as i said go go and
0: read the book definitely do it if you're interested in this for the pod we're going to cover a few key bands to give you a little taster so those bands are black flag minor threat sonic youth butthole surfers because it's just so much fun um Fugazi um and a uh, little less detail three bands who are, uh, are great mission of burma huskadoo and bad brains um there's some there's some really other important bands i know i know you're a big dinosaur junior fan for example Brennan, aren't you uh men mud honey who we mentioned um to name three so uh we're gonna start with black flag because there's only one place to start really isn't there and uh we're gonna do that
2: after this
4: Hello, we are, some of those. are you are listening,
2: listening, listening to Rayburn and on Ray-Ban Rhymes? Rhymes?
0: of so why are they so important well the indie movement started with them now some listeners may have heard of them obviously Henry Rollins is, is the most famous member and he's gone on to do many other things most notably with Jackass I think um, <laughs> but uh, they, they are the kind of the the pioneers of this this scene, really. So, Brendan, tell me a bit about Black Flag.
3: They were a brilliant bridge between uh, a lot of the activities in California. Uh, there was definitely a really uh, an attitude that was left over from the, from the hippiedom. Thurston Moore from the Sonic Youth has a great quote where he, you know, he says that punks were essentially just nihilistic hippies. It was the same kind of uh, attitudes and, and and being fed up with the way the system is run and feeling like an outsider, but but it it had a new energy and a new sort of focus. Black Flag really started because of Greg Ginn. They had a guy called Keith Morris, um, who started out uh, with them, who was on vocals, and and then Henry Rollins comes in, and and, and Henry Rollins, he was the kind of poster boy for for hardcore, really, I mean. And these guys absolutely raised the bar, and they traveled around the country on nothing, eating almost nothing.
0: They did more than anyone, really, to, to cement the scene, as you say, around the country they they inspired other bands to do it kind of DIY just traveling you know around with a band and they basically created this kind of scene in each town that they went to where eventually by the mid 80s late 80s you know a band could go to a place and there would be a venue for
3: them to play they really raised the bar and it was from from really their efforts and Greg Gin's efforts that it, it really uh, took off because uh, he set up the SST label Now.
0: I guess it was to do with them being, starting in Southern California, there was a, a great environment there for them to develop. There were this, there were some fanzines. We've mentioned how important fanzines were. Slash and Flip Sides fanzines started in 1977. There were indie labels like Frontier, Posh Boy, and Danger House that came soon afterwards. Now, by 1979, of course, we're talking about a scene that came after punk. So punk was obviously very short-lived. Pretty much by 1979, it had died out. Um, so what, what, what was kind of, obviously we, we've heard this term post-punk, but we're not talking really about, we will come on to a few bands like Mission of Burma who were kind of post-punk, but when we're talking about Black Flag, we're not talking about that. It was, that was more of a hip thing. It was more of a British scene wasn't it?
3: Yeah, very much so. I mean, it was bands like The Fall, Gang of Four and Joy Division who were sort of carving out a, a completely different sort of, well, like a new sort of sonic landscape, but based on, on sort of what they'd done in punk. I mean, there are exceptions, but there was often very like, a, uh, very much a British focus, and that was the direction that, that Pill were going as well, uh, John Lydon's band, um, and so it seemed like they were, that there was a move away from the sort of, you know, angry energy, but it was being sort of converted into something very new.
0: Uh, yeah, and a, a bit more arty, and something that I'm certainly a fan of, and you know, I don't really think of Joy Division as an elitist band particularly, you know, they were working class guys from Manchester, but they were you know doing something quite arty actually and and I think it's just of the fact that you know this suburban youth in california didn't didn't really connect with that um so they they were looking for something a bit more straightforward. They just started playing this music that was that was just rev revved up punk basically they revved up the music even faster at tem- tempos, and that's what became hardcore.
3: yeah, I have a lot to thank bands like the Ramones who toured relentlessly around the country and really forged out a real love Uh, and you know most of these these guys in this in this book will mention the Ramones uh, particularly Ramones and Bad Brains because they really like uh, carved out a real niche for those things but also raised the tempo you know suddenly going harder and faster was the way to go and, and a lot of bands jumped on it including Black Flag
0: yeah, so it was very much that that feeling of like of saying to people, their audience, you know, if you don't like the system, you should just create your own, and they did. They created a new scene. So that's Black Flag, um, such an important band, as we say. Um, next, we're going to be talking about Minor threats. I
4: apologize for rocking out-
0: So straight from Black Flag into Minor Threat, formed in 1980 by Ian McKay as a real legend, we'll talk about him more, and drummer Jeff Nelson. Now Henry Rollins was actually from DC um, and he was a childhood friend of Ian McKay and actually he ended up in Black Flag because of Ian McKay and kind of the links there. I've been to DC a couple of times and been quite fascinated by the city actually because it's it's obviously the capital of the US. It's the seat of power. It's where the government's based and a lot of administrative kind of offices. But it, in, culturally, it's not. It's certainly not New York because it was this city that was the capital. But they had to create their own team, didn't they?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, there was pretty much nothing going for those guys really. I mean, uh, I mean, there was the, there were definitely there was music obviously available to them. Basically, Ian McKay and. Uh, I think he, he says he had a different perspective because his parents you know his parents were teachers so he had a slightly you know what would you say more affluent slightly more affluent than uh, and, than maybe some of his friends but he moved away and moved back and he could see a lot of his friends sort of disappearing into sort of hopelessness and just getting into drugs and I mean you know like just as a teenager this this guy like could see what was happening around him and and took control of his environment you know which is an extremely political thing to do. And, and you know managed to galvanise all uh, you know all these you know really young kids to like get really into it. It kind of set up inadvertently from that set up a, a the sort of straight edge lifestyle, which was you know to sort of push those things uh, like drink and drugs away, and and you know stay as staying sober, which is to have the edge.
0: And there's a, there's a song called Straight Edge, of course, by by Minor Threat, which is going to play now. <laughs> of threat were the epitome of hardcore you could say it was definitely separate going back to this idea of kind of more arty bands in the british scene there was also this kind of more elitist new york scene going on wasn't there but but this was definitely again a suburban angry teenager kind of vibe
3: yeah absolutely i mean th- these were kids who didn't really fit into to to the whole uh, us landscape of music at the, at the time because there was definitely stuff going on but i think a lot of these guys felt very marginalised. Um, but it is interesting that Henry Rollins and, and Ian McKay are kind of from that environment. Ian McKay just had that, that just enough bent to kind of realise what was happening around him. Straight Edge is really, you know, I mean, it, it sometimes gets a little bit of a bad name sometimes for being a bit preachy. But really it's about taking control and uh, it's a real political sort of self-control of, of you know your, your individuality and thinking and thinking straight and you know I think there there's a lessons to be learned uh, you know especially now as well you know capitalism has an, an amazing way of using mental illness um, and keeping us in our boxes but you know I think straight edge proves that you know you can you can take control of your of your of your surroundings and you can you can take control of yourself and you can really build uh, you know a community and you can build a real strong sense of self
0: there was something slightly contradictory i mean we're coming to fugazi and kind of mckay in the later years what the the stuff he used to say on stage to 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 the crowds but at the time Minor threat did like a bit of fighting didn't they
3: yeah they did it was funny because they they, you know they don't want drinks and, and they don't want drugs and they don't want sex uh you know but but they were quite happy to like you know in, in their gang to like you know step up but I think you have to look at the conditions at the time I mean these guys were you know if you had a mohawk and you walk down the street I mean you, you you it was a highly likely you were gonna get beaten up and you know and, and these guys had to deal with so it was kind of it, there's a gang thing there and I think you know I think Ian McKay you know that they weren't in a gang culture and they weren't going out actively looking for violence but if it if push came to shove you know they they'd go to it and their gigs definitely kicked off <laughs>
0: Now we're going to move on to Fugazi because that was another Ian McKay band formed in 1987. One of my favourite bands, personally. They blended elements of, I guess, dub reggae with with the the punk hardcore style guitars. Um, they had a whole, you know, ethics and ethos uh, approach to the business of music, and they're just incredible. I mean, what 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 do you admire about Fugazi, Brendan?
3: Just how how varied their music is, considering it comes from hardcore, because the. Obviously, the the tendency with hardcore is that it does get, it very quickly went into its own box and and became a, you know, a very distinct sound that didn't really evolve. But the guitar is like such a versatile sound. And during hardcore, that would have been an absolute no-no. But then all of a sudden there was, you know, there was this new kind of way of thinking about it, much more open and and very much inspired by kind of a little bit of dub. And because there, there was a whole go-go scene in DC as well, so I, I, you know, I don't think Ian McKay's ever said he was necessarily inspired by that, but you can't help but wonder if that kind of went in there.
0: I'm sure it did. And also, they they achieved all this sound without really many effects, did they on the guitars?
3: Yeah, they, it was really stripped back. I mean, they they didn't really use any distortion at all. I mean, it was it was all through the amps and driven. Um, and then very uh, but they had such a, a fantastic ethos as well like they really took that whole ethos from Minor Threat and and, and kept it going you know they, they could have easily given up on it just did it for the success and whatever but they, they retained all of those attitudes you know making sure that kids could come to their shows and they weren't too expensive uh, you know I think they went through a phase of you know capping it at like five dollars or something they
0: basically said we're not going to deal with the corporate music industry at all. We're gonna do this completely DIY, completely without that. So I obviously signed to Ian McKay's label, Discord, that he created himself. And one of the things they really wanted to do was create an environment, as you say, accessible for, for everyone, but so they could still make a living. So they decided that $5 a ticket for their shows was was fair. You know, they, they could make a living and people could come to their shows. They carried on doing that for a long time. And it was actually only in the later years yeah, and travelling on the west coast in particular, western east coast, that um, they had to charge, you know, up to up to fifteen dollars occasionally. But pretty much they've
3: kept that ethos. They're also relentless tourers. I mean, I've seen live performances of them playing just like high schools, and you know, there's a really famous shot of guy, you know jumping through a hoop basically you know and you know it must have been absolutely amazing I mean you can imagine if you were like sort of 15 and they turn up at your high school you know it'd be like the greatest thing you know and they just played a lot of just like you know real like places where they could really get one-to-one with people and and if you watch any of their shows you, you know like these days you can watch all that kind of stuff on youtube they're just fantastic gigs and just really giving back to to their fans like all the time
0: yeah and also they were obviously thinking of the live shows when they were writing the songs i'd call them kind of shout along some of the, some of the choruses really it was definitely designed for kind of that kind of environment wasn't it <laughs>
3: As long as you know four, you know, words that are the chorus line, you can you can absolutely bash it out with your mates at a gig, and uh, it, you know it just basically just fuels the sense of being in a gang and being in the community, and it, um, you know, I mean, there's nothing you can imagine. There would have been nothing better than ending a set with shouting, you know, the last few lines of, of their songs, you know.
0: And also moving on from kind of what they were doing, the kind of moshing and stuff in in Minor Threat actually McKay got to the point where he was singling people out in the crowd and, and, and stopping them hurting other people. There's a quote, great quote, um, maybe you could read it for, for us Brendan. What, what did he in McKay? It's the kind
3: of things that he used to say on stage. So I hate to belabor the point but why don't you think about the fact that you're constantly kicking the same people in the head? <laughs> so it was always,
0: always polite, it was always uh, a, a kind of non-violent approach and uh, and apparently people the punks just didn't know how to react to this they were like confused by it because they were just they only knew how to react to violence and Absolutely. so if someone they, was
3: I don't think they expected people to reason with them as well which uh, you know was a brilliant thing and uh, I think sometimes it just goes to show that sometimes if you if you meet people one on one with with something that you know rather than just thinking they're a muscle head but if you get on their get on their level and talk to them and you know you get a good response you know
0: and of course, they were straight edge. This came from minor Threat. And, and at that point, apparently, you know, the whole band had gone vegetarian which, and touring in the US. Probably quite difficult to actually be vegetarian at that point. I mean, easy now, but you've got to remember what it was like for vegetarians back in the 80s, um, let alone vegans. Let's not even go there. Yeah. But uh, also, you know, straight edge. But in this alternative scene, especially in Europe, they ended up apparently in, you know, these squat type things. They were They were obviously doing the doing the tours on the cheap, staying at the promoters' houses and things. So they ended up in kind of druggy, kind of squat environments. And the, for a straight edge that person, that must have been quite difficult sometimes.
3: It's a real testament to try to stay true to your uh, your ethos, you know. And these guys, like, there was no question. I mean, it was definitely definitely how they were going to go. And you can imagine, like, you know, the music scene, especially, like, 70s, 80s, you know, that was must have been so much drugs and, and crazy kind of stuff going on. And they really stuck to their guns, you know. So there's a great quote from uh, Fugazi member Brendan Canty, um, which
0: Brendan is going to read out now.
3: Uh, A series of uh, squats meant a series of stinky rooms uh, and a series of rooms where people were staying up all night smoking hash next to you while you're trying to sleep or waking up to Black Flag playing at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, and there was plenty of times being in Germany where you're playing in some shitty, really awful squat with German punks passed out on the stage in front of you. And the whole place reeking because nobody cleaned it up all night. Somebody vomits on the stage, total squalor. And then at the end of the night, we say, uh, you promised us a place to stay. And they go, oh, yeah, here it is. And you look over, it's your dressing room, just right off the stage. So you go there and set up your sleeping bag in a room where you just got off stage. uh, about a half uh, about an hour before and it stinks and there's still vomit on the stage right next to where you're sleeping so you get in your sleeping bag and there's some mattresses back there but they're totally disgusting so you lay on them uh, so you you lay them out and get in your sleeping bag and you get up to the bathroom and this is all true and the toilet is smashed and there are rats running around the toilet so there's no place to shit or piss and there's no running water and you're locked in because they want to lock the place so we had to piss out of a mail slot (laughs) And there's rats running around, so we all get in our sleeping bags and we just pull the drawstrings up as close as possible so the rats won't get in. (laughs) And they were locked in there as well. There was no escape. That must have been horrible. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I mean, no one's going to question your dedication to music after that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So that was Fugazi, next we're going to be talking about Sonic Youth who I'm sure you've heard of but we're going to try and tell you a bit more about them and and why they were so important to the scene. So, Sonic Youth, incredible band, they influenced everyone. It's fair to say, without
3: Sonic Youth, you probably wouldn't have Nirvana. Definitely not. I mean, they were real champions of Nirvana. Um, I and mean, then they were champions of a lot of bands. They were real cha- uh, you know, They really helped Dinosaur Jr. get going as well. So, they were formed
0: in New York in 1981. Uh, founding members were Thurston Moore, Kim Gordon and Lee Ronaldo. Thurston Moore and Lee Rinaldo uh, were actually members of Glenn Branca's Electronic Guitar Ensemble. Um, which influenced Sonic Youth. So they were kind of a experimental band, guitar and song, as you can imagine. But they were, you know, they were trying new things with guitars, weren't they? And that was quite revolutionary at the time.
3: Yeah, really experimental stuff where they, you know, they'd have like sort of eight guitars all tuned to the same note, blanging out this kind of insane, you know, noise. And uh, I think they probably were really, really inspired by that. I think it, it sort of, you know, I think the guitar. Is an incredibly versatile instrument. You know, there's so much you can do with it. And somebody said, but basically, you know, Sonic Youth, what Sonic Youth did did for the guitar, it was it was basically uh, as monumental as when Jimi Hendrix, you know, set his guitar on fire. It was, I mean, the sonic landscapes they get from their instruments is just absolutely unprecedented, and it's so unique. Even you even try to do it yourself now, and it, you can't even get close to it. They absolutely, and you know, they would tour with all these guitars, uh, tuned in various ways, and. I mean, it's. And they used to attach screwdrivers
0: to the instruments, and obviously, there were two guitars, so they'd play each, off each other as well in, in interesting ways. Yeah, I mean, they had a great sense of musicianship between them. And yeah, and it wasn't really, it wasn't, certainly wasn't like a rhythm guitar and lead guitar kind of setup at all, was it? It was just using the instruments in, in different ways and, and thinking about approaching the instrument in a completely different way. They were also really important as a sort of epicenter for the whole DIY scene, really. And I think what's interesting is that they were at the heart of this kind of artier, slightly older, based in New York. A little bit elitist, you could say, but Sonic Youth really tried to step away from that. If not in the music, but in their approach. They were really like a kind of like a a brother or a sister kind of shoulder to cry on for for many
3: of the, the slightly younger bands, weren't they? Well, yeah, they definitely they supported loads of stuff. They not only just knew loads of bands, but they, they had direct support to a lot of really good bands, and they were a real like asset. But they were always very inclusive and always very. It's always about the music, you know, with them.
0: Just just a word on you know their song structures because they they had like quite kind of punk kind of riffs sometimes, but then they just have these amazing kind of sections that last you know sometimes three to five minutes in the middle of songs. That was that was just innovative, wasn't it? It's was kind of, I guess, a bit of a prog approach.
3: Yeah, it is a bit proggy, actually. I don't want to use that dirty word. It's, and- yeah, it's funny you, you you say that. Actually, it is it is a little bit, but I think it's it's not proggy in that it's kind of, um, you know, it's 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 less show offy, I suppose. It's and it's it's it, you know the, they were technically good guitarist but it wasn't about that it was it was about creating these incredible like landscapes and textures and Sorry, yeah landscapes yeah yeah definitely and and sort of you know and and um, I mean you know just daydream nation uh, as, as an album is incredible because it's it's you know it's a, it's a real very like uh, smart look at uh, sort of Reaganism and and during the 80s which which is like the specter over all of this I mean, there were a lot of bands who directly, you know, put the finger up to Reagan, basically. But then there were a lot of bands who just simply carved out, in a way, they just carved out a, a completely new thing for themselves and a new way of thinking about stuff. But then we're still, you know, still referencing the sort of really odd sort of things that they, they felt like they were seeing in, in, in America at the time. And I think Daydream Nation is an absolutely phenomenal album for that. I mean, it absolutely calls up America on all kinds of stuff. Um, and it's absolutely, you know, I mean it's not often you can say punk can be beautiful I mean I mean, Sonic Youth are downright beautiful sometimes I mean they have moments where it's really heartbreaking and there's not a huge amount of punk like that really I mean uh, often it's extremely angry and visceral which is what you you know sometimes what you want but a Sonic Youth definitely they're, they're, it's some really sensitive and really deep emotions there and a little bit like what I get from Dinosaur Jr. as well you know there's a there's definitely a kind of sort of feeling of being lost but then trying to you know, trying to rise above it and trying to kind of, you know, trying to realize those emotions in in punk, you know, which I think is fantastic. What's your favorite Sonic Youth song? Favorite Sonic Youth song? Uh, That's so hard. Uh, I absolutely love Schizophrenia. I think that was going to be my choice, actually. (laughs) it's Yeah, it's just a great, like, just a really simple story. But it's very, again, it's very, you know, it's a little bit heartbreaking, the story in in Schizophrenia. It's a great hook. It's a great guitar line. And then the way it goes into the, the more
0: sonic landscape section again, it's just just yeah. fantastic. I mean,
3: I absolutely, I love Daydream Nation. I love Dirty. Um, and I think Dirty's got, uh, I mean, obviously Dirty's a little later than what what's covered in the book, but it's an absolutely like 90s, you know, gem. It, it, it set the whole tone for a lot of stuff. And um, there's absolutely amazing tracks on it, like Drunken Butterfly. It's just an absolutely insane assault. And, it, you know, and no one else does it like that. Um, and yeah I think that those are some probably some of my finest like my favorite moments
0: so that was Sonic Youth we're gonna move on to my favorite band not my favorite band but I've been (laughs) really looking forward to these guys to talking about these guys next it'll be the butthole surfers
3: you got with sharon and sharon got sharia she was sharing sharon's outlook on the topic of disease mikey had a facial scar bobby was a racist they were all in love with dying they were doing it in texas tommy played piano like a kid out in the rain then he lost his leg in Dallas. he was dancing with the train they were all in love with dying
4: they were drinking from a fountain that was pouring like an avalanche coming down the mountain i don't
0: So there was a a bit of a snapshot of some butthole surfers music there. Formed in Texas by Gibby Haynes and Paul Leary. They're probably the weirdest and most depraved band we're going to be talking about. And legendary live shows which aim to basically freak
3: people out. Yeah, they basically had like strobe effects, you know, naked women dancing a bit like, you know, it's almost, it, it kind of harbors back to a little bit of a Hawkwind vibe, you know. I mean, all these guys absolutely freaking out on acid. Um, there was a Gr- Grateful Dead kind of influence as well. Yeah, definitely. They're the kind of you know those bands, Hawkwind, Grateful Dead. A lot of the there's a lot of other bands in the '60s. You know, like at the UFO uh, UFO club in London, where the whole thing was. It wasn't just the bands. It was the whole show. You know, like and Behold, Surface weren't necessarily unique in that in that, but they absolutely took it to another level. I mean, they, they did they they lived what they did on stage, and they they lived it as part of their lives. Yeah there's a there's a great VICE article actually uh written by Daniel Dylan Ray
0: he says they lied cheated stole drank and drugged themselves to near death and don't even have a good discography to make it worthwhile <laughs> yeah so musically i yeah. mean i think they're a lot better than than they made out themselves in some ways you know but they always said they were
3: they were a band without the talent i mean it, it, musically, what, what do you think of them? You put it on and you go, wow, this is just mental. And, and so I've never been a huge fan of their stuff, but I just love just the fact that they exist at all is amazing. And their, their whole story and tales and, like, uh, just their whole approach to music is just absolutely out there. I mean, we wouldn't have bands like Flaming Lips and stuff like that from without the whole surface. I mean, they absolutely, like, made the whole live performance, you know, really part of it. Um, and, and, I, and brought a kind of psychedelic
0: element to punk, really.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's very. It's it, like it basically taps into a lot of the hippie stuff. It kind of keeps a lot of the hippie stuff going with punk, basically. We talked about Fugazi being, you know, this straight edge They had a really.
0: Uh, strong sense of kind of moral compass and uh, these guys were at the opposite end of this the spectrum really they they were DIY by approach but it was more by necessity than any ethical
3: standpoint basically wasn't it they were definitely smart guys and they knew how to generate sort of a little bit of publicity for themselves in cash and like look after themselves But, but they weren't ethically minded in that regard they were absolutely like you know do as many drugs as possible and have an absolutely mental time and like well you know we should just have to tell a few stories basically and then you're, you're, you're basically once you hear a little bit about them you, you just you kind of want to know more because it's just so unbelievable yeah so what
0: are some of the things they, they got up to they they once moved to Athens Georgia to allegedly stalk
3: REM yeah, and uh, one performance, two members uh, had an impromptu full sex on stage and that's kind of Gibby Hayes would vomit on stage and there'd be all sorts of other stuff. That- they uh, they had a foam tube which they called the piss wand and they sprayed <laughs> yeah. the, the piss wand over the crowd. There's a kind of pig, pig fuck kind of genre where... In Texas, where I mean, and these guys—they were like legendary sort of festivals, not festivals in the way that we think of festivals now, but like gatherings where these, where all these guys would meet up, and and all sorts of mad depravity would go on, and like. You know, um, and and so they they come out of a really weird scene that had basically been isolated for a long time. Yeah, was it the Um, fact that they were from Texas that made them so weird? I think a little bit, definitely. And I think like, uh, you know, it makes me think of that quote from uh, Full Metal Jacket where the drill sergeant goes, only steers and queers come from Texas and you don't look like much of a steer to me. Um, it's just kind of like, you know, it just it, it almost makes it, it not necessarily that, you know, I'm not I'm not talking about their sexuality or anything like that. I'm just saying that that there, there's a real duality to probably how, you know, the the kind of people that would have that still live in Texas, you know, is, it, you know, can be very. I mean, it's like it's like that everywhere, really. But and you get that a bit in Britain, but there's, there can be very conservative people. And then alongside you get these very liberal just absolutely just people who are just up for anything. And because um, of the the fact that it's such a, such a large country in
0: such a large state in Texas yeah. those people don't have access to the things that we do maybe in a smaller country where we can just go to a city where it is more liberal.
3: Yeah and, and, and just simply you know people always forget you have to remember with America how big it is and how isolated that people can be. Like I mean you know the Seattle scene was going for ages before anyone paid any attention to it so it's a similar kind of thing. So a few more stories they uh, they once all allegedly
0: touched the suitcase with their penises which then Jimmy president at the time Jimmy Carter then picked up.
3: Yeah, it's 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 uncertain whether they, they, they did that on purpose or, not, or or like well they did it obviously on purpose but like it's uncertain whether they knew that was his briefcase or not but it's still it's still a brilliant like claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: They they actually had a pet ball. Who went everywhere with them, and uh, the name of that pit bull was Mark Farner
3: of the Grand Funk Railroad. <laughs> yes, just. It's just like yeah, and I think they were also genius at, at sort of coming up with names uh, and and titles for their tracks, and just and like little phrases and lyrics that were just just absolutely wacky and like brilliant, you know. Gibby Hayes, he had a really promising career as, yeah. a, as an accountant, and he the reason why he left is because he left some some horrible mutilated picture of a dick. In a in a photocopier, and you know he was. I I I it's it's unclear whether I think he was. I think he just left. I think because it was kind of like maybe it's time to leave, or that he was kind of, you know, it was suggested maybe he should leave. But I mean, you know, it it, it it's kind of like those guys were always going to be doing mad stuff like that. It was kind of. It's it was like, their destiny, really, yeah. It was yeah. their destiny, yeah. <laughs> so, so in the early years, the, they, they had five members.
0: They basically lived in the back of a tour van in a kind of a commune-like environment. It, was, it has been called a cult, the butthole surface, because of the, the kind of the way they, they just traveled around together, did everything together. Um, and they used to collect bottles for... For a five cent refund, just just to scrape back a bit of money. They uh,
3: they'd kind of scrape around to get on gig billings wherever they could, basically. Oh yeah, eat out of eat out of you know trash cans, and you know like yeah. just any anything you can just to get by, you know. And uh, of course, they were massively into drugs. Um, Mark
0: Kramer, who played in a band called bong water um he had a stint as a touring member of the butthole surfers he was it sounds like he wasn't quite as crazy but this quote he says they sprinkled lsd on their cornflakes every morning which was then washed down with johnny walker red beer for lunch lowly mexican dirt weed smoked in bone dry bongs for dinner and then two hours of coughing fits and then another bowl of lsd an hour before showtime i mean that's pretty mental, isn't it? What about the enigma of the butthole? I mean, <laughs> they uh, <laughs> I just like that phrase. <laughs> yeah. They uh, they never really admitted their true motives and always seemed to be kind of parodying themselves and playing their own talent down. As you mentioned, Haynes was on a fast-track route to being a successful accountant. Um, and also, Paul Leary was inches away from a master's degree in business and administration. Although they, they were kind of lunatics, they were constantly high by the sounds of it, they did run the band in a kind of with a business sense, and uh, the DIY approach was really made it a kind of a business model because their their outgoings were so low, they were able to to lead the lifestyle they wanted to lead, and perhaps that's why they survived so long. Then this kind of ethical standpoint comes along, because or, or lack of it really, because they were willing to subvert to the point where, you know, even cashing in was to them a rebellious act, really. Um, there's another book by Max Easton, uh, who's it, it's called uh, Life Makes Me Nervous, I Like the Butthole Surfers, which is a bit more of a, a detailed account than in, in the book we're talking about about uh, the butthole surfers. So he says, the fact they sued Alternative Tentacles, which was their label, for taking too high a cut to their back catalogue is the most illuminating. It shows where their head was at in the 90s, where they were, where they were coming to realise that the whole independent DOI philosophy only worked if you weren't making money. They weren't purists in that sense, which I think is a huge reason they haven't had that same traction in the retelling of punk history as your black flags or minor threats.
3: You know, people were always going to wonder how far that they can push their stuff. And and I think you you just have to remember the butthole surface got there first, I think.
4: (laughs) I have
0: That was Mission of Burma. They were from Boston. Brendan, what's, what's so great about Mission of Burma?
3: Well, I think they, they're just really classy, in my opinion. They just got a real solid, solid sound, and, and they incorporated sort of tape loops as well, which, um, you know, obviously, Butthole Surfers did as well. Like, they would slow their voices down and make it sound really, you know, hypnotic and really trippy. And, but then on top of that, just really good songs and really good vibe about them.
4: Titan, whisper, sing.
0: next up, we just played you some bad brains. they were from d c um, they influenced MK they were Rastafarians who invented hardcore punk and mixed it with reggae basically but Tell me a bit more about the Bad Brains. Bro.
3: They sort of became Rusty and very early on, they they were your your local hardcore kind of band. Um, they used to play parties and stuff, and like
0: they may have invented hardcore, really.
3: Yeah, I think I mean, it's hard to say. Obviously, who invented it? Because you know, there's like who invented you know, you know any kind of particular genre of music. But but yeah, I think they they absolutely raised the bar. Like everyone realized where it was going after that point. Their their band name is is after a Ramones track. There's a Ramones track bad uh, you know bad brains and they just pinched that and then it, it makes perfect sense where they were taking it
0: but then they introduced a reggae element as well or a dub element
3: yeah later on in in after probably like a couple years of them playing they they did in, start playing like reggae like dub reggae from what i remember i think what they were doing is trying to go back a bit to their roots as well so they 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 kind of felt a really strong close relationship with 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 the religion and really started to try to like Incorporate it into their into their style, and it works amazingly well. I mean, if you watch live stuff of theirs, they 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 play a fast like hardcore set with absolutely like you know the doctor is amazing guitarist, like all kinds of mad stuff going on, uh, and, and then they'd slow it right down and play a real kind of cool kind of groove for for reggae. They definitely sort of had moments where they could have been really big because um, they did they were going to go on a tour in in Britain, but they had I mean well first of all they had their kit stolen at one point and then they they got stopped at the border and coming into Britain so it doesn't say a lot for Britain does it really I mean they basically got stopped at the border held and then sent back so they couldn't do their tour in Britain there's always been a problem with the kind of whitewashing of stuff and, and, and there's definitely a whitewashing of punk and people forget how important some of these bands were uh, you know that had women in it that had uh, you know black guys and guys from all, all over the world in, involved you know Uh, And Bad Brains are just like, you know, they're on another level and they're just really definitely worth checking out.
0: Just played you some Husker Du, and uh, there are there are another really influential band. Uh, what what what's so great about Husker D?
3: Well, I mean, just Bob Mold is um, just a, you know an amazing songwriter, um, and I think it he it, it showed that that uh, hardcore could be very melodic, and he, he loves his good you know chorus guitar. Like his guitar just sounds like you know there's like a million guitars going at once, and like it's it, yeah it's a really intense thing. But then they had a real strong sense of melody and like. You know, a real a much more variation than a lot of hardcore bands as well. And he was incredibly supportive of the local scene. and And I think what their legacy is is because is, um, when you, when you hear college, when you think of college rock, they really define that sound of college rock. But then you think of uh, you think of a lot of you know that, that sort of American, particularly American kind of self, very self-aware kind of punk, where people sing about you know they they look more in like inside themselves as well. And hardcore has always been good at that and Bob Mould is is very good at sort of picking up on those things and and if you listen to them you you, now you you can hear their influence very distinctly on on a huge amount of American uh, punk music.
4: Just in cemetery, boy tasting wild cherry, touch girl apple blossom, just a boy playing possum, we'll come back for Indian summer, we'll come back for
0: Indian summer, we'll come back for Indian summer. So we just played you beat Happenings there. They could be described as kind of inventing, or, or a big influence on kind of lo-fi, lo-fi music, and they they came up in Olympia. Now, Brennan, it's a bit of a personal thing for you because you spent some of your childhood in Olympia. Is that right?
3: My parents moved there in '89, so we were there sort of as as the the area was kind of developing a bit culturally. You know, obviously very young. I, I, we moved there when I was four. So we were there for about nine years, and, and you know, I, I remember, I mean, there was no way you could get, you know, even at that age, there was no way I could ignore, certainly by 1991, there was no way you could ignore what was going on. I mean, everyone was, you know, kids were bringing Nirvana into school, and I remember a kid doing a little talent show on his, on his guitar trying to be Kurt Cobain. You know, and, and there's just no way you could get rid of you know, around it. But we lived uh, in just outside in a little neighborhood in Olympia. And me and my brother used to ride around on our bikes and just explore. And like, it was quite relaxed. Like, it's a very bohemian sort of part of, of the country. And people were quite, you know, everyone, it, it's a little, being logging towns, people are a little bit isolated. And, you know, I remember passing through at the time when I was probably about seven. And, you know, I remember my cousin going, oh, yeah, you know, Croker Bane's from this town. And, and I remember looking at it and going, hmm, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like a real small little town nestled, you know, on, you know, it's a logging town. So there's all, there were all these trees, you know, like in the river kind of, you know, drifting up into the town. And you can imagine it would have, for a, for a guy, a kind of sensitive punk like, you know, Kurt Cobain, it wouldn't have, would have been kind of tough. And if you read about his stories there, it was, it sounded like it was a bit rough.
0: What about the Olympia scene with beat happenings? I mean, there was this thing going on there that was kind of quite quite different to to other to other cities obviously there was an interaction with the seattle scene and the chicago scene a lot other bands passing through but what was special about kind of beat happenings and and that that legacy
3: i mean nirvana's i think even then themselves called themselves like an olympia band so they, they they don't necessarily think of themselves as part of seattle necessarily but um, I think, you know, and I think Olympia did have clearly a, a, a quite a unique sort of scene going on. So Calvin from Beat Happenings um, wanted to put much more of a sort of sensitivity and much more st- sort of stripped back. I mean, yeah, it was very much like thrown together. But Calvin was uh, a real hero. His performance was very intimate, but they're hugely influential. And if you listen to them, they've, they've, you can definitely pinpoint a lot of records since then that they really influence because they, they they just have a very unique sort of charm about them i think that people that really struck a chord with people oh,
1: I'm Matt Letitier, and you're listening to Rabonas and Rhythms. So from beautiful music to the beautiful game, we've got a fascinating football story to bring you that's come out of Portland, Oregon, in the northwest of the US over the last few months.
0: Yeah, so the Portland Timbers, who've played in the Major League Soccer's Western Conference since 2010, they've developed a reputation for having a kind of European-style hardcore fan base, kind of ultras style. Their home games feature a sea of green in the north end of the Providence Park Stadium. They're called the Timbers Army. They're a raucous supporters group with more than 5,000 paying members. It's quite a movement really for such a a relatively small club. Um, And of course, It'd be important. They've got a reputation as left-leaning supporters group. Lots of grassroots work in the local community and promoting liberal values. Sounds a bit like Clapton FC.
1: Yeah, I was absolutely fascinated researching this team and and how they have brought that kind of European style to their support, uh, but also yeah, very left left-leaning, very socially conscious, and that will come through in our interview uh, in just a moment. So the reason we're talking about them is because the fans have been at odds uh, with the club and MLS um, over the last year or so uh, after they first displayed an iron front flag on a railing and then uh, kind of had some discussion with the club about where that would sit. The, the debate is that the symbol itself uh, comes from the kind of Nazi era anti-fascist movement. But has been reappropriated by some anti-fascists that engage in violence. That's what that's the club's argument. The fans say that it simply represents an opposition to fascism and persecution, and is a human rights symbol. Uh, so fascinating issue as it, uh, as it was. We're going to speak to Stephen Lewis. He's the co-chair for community outreach for the Timbers Army. He's helped to organise some of the protests against uh, fans who've been banned from the stadium, including an astonishing one that you can see on YouTube uh, with their bitter, bitter rivals, Seattle Sounders. They spend the first 33 minutes with all fans in the stadium, uh, not singing or chanting, and then they erupt into singing and applause. So it's fascinating to watch if you can, Uh, but we're gonna start by chatting to Stefan Lewis.
2: Portland Timbers started up in 1975, incidentally the same year I was born. By the mid 2000s, the Timbers Army in the North End and the support and the, just the attendance overall, we were outdrawing a lot of clubs, just doing our thing and you know doing our chants and creating the environment that we wanted and you know really um, you know like as you're building supporters a supporters group from the ground up, so much of that is like recruiting. You know, you see somebody with Sambas, you see somebody with a kit, you go out and approach and be like, hey, have you checked out the Timbers? Yeah, you should come check it out. Come hang out with us. You know, seriously, it was like that, you know, and especially going to, you know, marginalized people, you know, it's like, hey, no, this is a great, you know, place for you. You know, come be a part of this, you know, like we will accept you for who you are. And it's always been a part of that.
1: How much was the fact that soccer isn't a hugely mainstream sport over there?
2: But so that's something that we all just kind of came to terms with, you know, we were outliers, we were, you know, this other, you know, we're out there playing the beautiful game because it's the beautiful game. You know, people like to compare us to different parts of the world as far as our personal style of support, um, but it's really uh, our own thing. It's an amalgamation. You know, there's elements of South America, there's elements of Europe, there's elements of, you know, even the Middle East and, you know, how that stuff works around you know, shoot, I mean, if you ever check out any of the J-League support, those kids are off the hook, man. Those guys are insane. And yeah, we borrow some of that too. What of our chance? It's actually, um, that we're the Timbers Army. Oi, the Green and White Army. We're the Timbers Army. Who are you? Oi, 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 oi. We got that from a Japanese team. That was killing it, man. It was like, I think it was Yokohama. I'm pretty sure it was Yokohama. But they were killing it, man. It just like the flags and blah, blah, blah. Just like 100%, man.
1: Can you just tell us about sort of the genesis of the dispute and, and where you're up to with it?
2: In order to do the type of work that we do and be... Um, Radically inclusive. It's important to have a cloak of strength around the embrace of love. Now, Iron Front was a symbol that allowed helps to symbolizes allowing that to happen. The Iron Front, as an organization, tried to rally people together to oppose the rise of fascism. You know, originally it was a World War, you know, pre World War II symbol uh, against the rise of fascism uh, through the Nazi Party. Uh, a pull towards communism and a return to monarchy. After seeing people in the members of their community, their neighbors, you know, being verbally and physically abused, being disappeared. After being outlawed, a lot of that happened to the Iron Front people being murdered in the street, being disappeared into concentration camps. Um, some joined the resistance. Uh, and those who survived wanted to make sure that we never did that again. You know, so they were able to plant the seeds. And they weren't alone. You know, a lot of different people post-World War II were like, hey, we can't let this happen again. When MLS first started up in the 80s and 90s, there were hate groups that were really trying to solidify themselves um, into the counterculture, whether that's punk rock, alternative music scene, um, and really looking for the disaffected youth. Um, And, you know, the Iron Front really kind of made a resurgence here locally in that. And so when hate groups started to make strategic plays into different places. And Portland was definitely a strategic place for them because historically we've been a very white place. The Iron Front actually became a part of that whole movement to say no. When MLS first started up after the US hosted the the World Cup, you saw it used. You know, We were able to take over the terraces. We were able to establish ourselves in the terraces as a welcoming place based on some of the history that I mentioned earlier. Um, that was important to us to make sure that everybody felt included. Nobody was ostracized for who they were and being who they are. Because, you know, fundamentally, each one of us is the best at being ourselves. You're the best you. You know, they're the best. they. She's the best her. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, like, that's what's great. You know, and that's the message that we had to com- That's the strongest message we had to combat um, these hate groups. Is it's not you're better than this person. And that gives you strength. You're you, and you be you, and that will give you strength. That will give you hope, you know, like that will make us all better. That's a beautiful thing. It also became a part as the Timbers Army kind of like was established and grew. That was a symbol that we use, you know? It wasn't like, you know, all the time in your face. It didn't need to be.
1: Just talk us through the nuts and bolts of of what's happened and the relationship with the club, uh, just for those who aren't sort of up, up to speed with the story.
2: The Timbers and Thorns front office will consistently say, that they've had our back, they share our ethos, they fought for us on a lot of different fronts. I mentioned the refugees welcome banner earlier, um, and you know there was some pushback from the league um, that they told us about, and they like supported that. saying, no, this is a human rights thing. That's that's fine. Over the past few years, we've had a larger Iron Front banner just on the front rail, just kicking it, doing its thing. And last year, they were like, you know, that banner. Yeah, do you think you could take it down? Like some people are associating it with violence and you know stuff like that, and you know we don't want to offend anybody. We've gotten some comments. asked ask them straight up: Are you asking us or telling us? And we're we'll, we'll, we're asking. It's like okay, we'll take it down and flew it as a flag, huge, prominent, in your face. And then they came back and like, whoa, 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 it's fine on the rail. It's fine on the rail. You can put it back on the rail. That's fine. Um, and so they're at stake, right? And then in the off season, the league ended up working on the code of conduct which is actually something that we've been looking for for a long time and not just us the bans and stuff that was the rules just from from front office to stadium throughout the the league mls in particular were just all over the place you know people were getting banned for all kinds of weird stuff and kicked out for stuff and some places wouldn't let you bring drums some places wouldn't let you bring Oh, you can bring flags with no flag poles, but then MLS puts it all over their marketing. You know, it's like, yay. (laughs) That person got banned. That person got banned. That person got banned. Thanks. I'm glad you're making some money off this. So when they created the code of conduct, we're like, awesome. Um, So a chunk of it's the rules. That's the the bulk. And they also took um, some of the language from the um, FIFA human rights policy and put that in there. Uh, which was great. They ended up with language of, like, no banners that are racist, sexist, xenophobic, homophobic, you know, all things that we are way super supportive. But then they threw in this other term, political. I'm like, well, what is political? You know, and we've seen it enforced in really strange ways. You know, we had people kicked out and banned in Atlanta for an end gun violence banner. Um, We had a banner in Salt Lake that had the supporters group's name and the civil rights fist, and that was removed. There weren't bans as far as I know of. Um, And the only symbol that was called out specifically was the Iron Front. They felt maybe they needed to both sides it and fall into the narrative of white nationalism and white supremacy, that there is a both sides to this type of issue, and there really isn't. You know, like you're for human rights or you're against human rights. You know, being anti-fascist is nothing new. We fought wars over this, and we won. With the rise in hate groups now kind of being more emboldened in the last few years, and the rise in hate incidents and bias incidents, you know, there's a play, say, oh, yeah, well, both sides, think.
3: You're putting what you're calling the alt-left and white supremacists on the same moral plane.
2: I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this, you had a group on one side and you had a group on the other, and they came at each other with clubs and it was vicious and it was horrible and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. On both sides, sir, you said
4: there was hatred, there was violence on both
0: sides.
2: well, I do think there's blame, yes. I think there's blame on both sides. You look at, you look at both sides, I think there's blame on both sides. There's been like a, a scramble to kind of like, oh, well, what's the story? What's going on here? And like, oh, you've got these people using the black block tactic. Ooh, they're the boogeyman. You know, oh, they must be bad. Look at them, you know, like defending people. You know, cause like, if you look, if you turn the camera just a little bit, you've got a little old lady who's there protesting hate. And you've got people wanting to attack you. You've got clergy. And, but, oh, the, the boogeyman. It's like, oh, well, what do we call them? You know, it's like, is it people using the black block tactic? No, it's like they're, they're anti-fascists. They're antifa, you know? And like, you know, that's something that's, you know, that just is, is permeating the national um, and international, you know, as far as I could tell, um, narrative about this. And that's a narrative that's driven by white supremacy and white nationalism because you look at the number of deaths from uh, anti-fascist protesters versus white supremacy and white nationalism and let me tell you it's infinite because there are zero deaths
1: so so just catch us up then Stefan, on on what the latest is with the issues that you've had with the club do you see any kind of signs of resolution with the club
2: we had the main protest with seattle where we are silent for 33 minutes which is definitely an undertaking and it was eerie it was really weird you know, when we went into Bella Chow after that or our rendition of it, you know, sent chills through people uh, and really helped bring the, the national and international dialogue into this subject and allow us to help break down uh, the different stuff. And, you know, it, it continues on. One of the things that we've always wanted is to have the code of conduct written not just by, you know, like a committee and MLS, but to have, you know, supporters there, but more importantly, have Experts there, human rights experts, people from marginalized communities represented in this discussion, Uh, and this specific symbol is just a vehicle for that. And, you know, of course we want to rescind the ban on the Iron Front uh, and we want to change the word political, but really it's about looking at the document and creating something that could be great, something that could be a model for other leagues around the world and domestically. You know, like we have the potential to do something awesome here.
1: Just looking on the pitch. Are there any players at Portland we should be looking out for or uh, in the wider Western Conference?
2: The player that everybody should be scouting on every match is Diego Chara. He may be small, but man, that's the guy that everybody hates. And you gotta love him, you know? Like, like, I don't care where you come from, man. This guy just works hard, he's quick, he gets in there. If you come anywhere close to him, he is going to make that challenge and he will be smiling as you're on the ground. He's running away with the ball. You know, every single time he brings it. So, you know, if you want to scout the timbers and look for somebody specific, you know, Diego Trot.
3: Hi, I'm Emil Heskey and you're listening to Rabonas and Rhythms. <laughs>
1: That was Stefan Lewis of the Timbers Army. Many thanks to him, and you can follow developments on that story on Twitter, at Timbers Army. Uh, and since we recorded the interview, actually, the MLS has agreed to lift the ban on the Iron Front Lego at matches, at least until the end of the season. And we'll try and keep you updated on our social channels of, of how that one develops.
4: Here it is! Bam! And you say goddamn, this is a dope
1: but it's fascinating, isn't it? A fascinating area: politics and sports, and particularly politics and football, because the profile of the of football and soccer is that much higher than other sports. And we've seen some interesting incidents recently. Uh, Alejandro Bedoya, uh, the Philadelphia Union captain, uh, who after scoring a goal recently said end gun violence now as very overtly political statement on the pitch and then also some interesting comments from megan Rapino when she won the fifa best award
0: uh, that's not the first comment by her i mean she's really been trailblazing um, she she also knelt with colin kopernick during the protest against racial injustice in the nfl and she's i think th- i think she's brilliant it's just great to see someone like that and she's really nailed it
1: Yes, yeah, I mean she had a fascinating career in, in terms of it looked like her career was over, and then she's back and the figurehead of a World Cup-winning team. Uh, but those uh, comments that she made are fascinating, uh, she, in particular where she talks about equal pay for women and everyone, and uh, also uh, to end discrimination against uh, LGBTQ people um, and how people outside those communities can really help because I think that's something. You know, my day job as a business journalist, I write a lot about kind of um, women seeking equal pay, um, particularly at the higher echelons of business. And it's always talked. they use this horrible phrase, but it makes sense called buy-in, you know, the new buy-in from people outside those communities to, to bring the issue to a wider thing. And I think that's what Rapino was trying to say there. Um, and it's worth saying that she and her American teammates have tried to sue the US Soccer Federation to get equal pay for the women's team against the men's because really when you're talking about national team wages there's no reason why it shouldn't be equal in my mind for the clubs it's slightly different you know if you're a Manchester City player who's been transferred for 50 million pounds. Of course, you're going to be on 100,000, 200,000 a week, and that can't yet be emulated in the women's game. Well, it's not
0: sustainable, is it? It's no, just there's just not that much money in the women's game,
1: yeah. unfortunately. And it's a long-term issue that, that you know. Hopefully, the women's game can build up to to be at that level. Uh, whether men deserve to be paid that uh, amount is perhaps a different issue. And finally, then please. Uh, there 's a lot of people kind of establishment figures who say uh, sport and politics shouldn 't mix. Where do you stand on that
0: I think just it 's just that politics is changing you know we 're living in un, complete completely unprecedented times, and we need to call people out we need to we need to make a statement
1: yeah absolutely and and also it 's a real education for younger fans you know. As soon as these things like cross over into other worlds, so uh, whether it's understanding the geography of a continent through knowing which football teams they have, or um, understanding religion through you know players that are of different faiths in it, football has that great way of bringing in things that you hadn't had any idea about because one player or one team is uh, different in some in some way, shape or form.
0: Absolutely, it's just it's nice that people care about Senegal because of Sadio Mene for example
1: (laughs) if you think you've come across something that we might enjoy uh, or think should be covered on the show then please do get in touch you can find us in all the usual places booths where might people find us
0: Facebook Instagram Twitter I've said that so many times in this podcast now Um, also just want to flag that uh, if you do listen to your podcast or want to listen to your podcast via Spotify then we're on there as well as other as all other good uh, podcast platforms.
1: Yeah, get us alongside your playlists. And we've got some playlists tailored to uh, the different episodes that we've covered on there. So do go on and enjoy those. So thanks for listening. And we're going to leave you from a track from that DIY scene.
0: Yeah, this is a band that weren't mentioned. As Brendan and I were saying, go and check out the book. Because there's so many bands in there. And um, they're all worth listening to. This is a band that have got a great story. um, And I love their music. They're called The Replacements.
4: (laughs) Death. She don't need advice that her send to her. She's happy with the way she looks. She's happy with her gender. And they love each other so androgynous Closer than you know Love each other so androgynous Miracle